How can we make the world better? By making ourselves better. The Dr. Joe Show explores how you can make positive personal change by using his groundbreaking and highly effective I Am approach to understand who we are and why we do what we do. Your small changes can have big effects. Join us now for the Dr. Joe Show with Mark Stiles of Stiles Law, Thomas McCoy, and your host, Dr. Joe Schrand. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Dr. Joe Show. Yes, that so deserves that applause. <laughs> thank you, thank you. A huge crowd applauding. That was great, Mark. I saw you warming up there too. It's really nice. Yeah, and yeah. you know, unique New York. That's unique warm up. Is it? Is it you? Really unique New York? That's it's hard, hard to say. It's that's the whole idea. Yeah. Unique yeah, New yeah. York. Yeah, I don't even like unique. Wow. <laughs> Good one. Good one. Give it a go. Give it a go. Unique oh, yeah, New yeah. York. Unique New York. <laughs> unique New York. Yeah, and and we, you know, by coincidence, we'll be getting to that a little later on. But yeah, we will. So, how's your week been? What's been happening? It's been great. It's been great. You know, it's always nice uh, Veterans Day to see those folks that have done so much for us to be honored uh, as much as they are. I mean, you cannot go on social media without a flag of you know scrolling, scrolling, scrolling. It's awesome. I love it, and uh, it'll be nice to see them honored every day like that. But it's nice to really pick out a day and, and, and give them their fair share of, of thank yous and remembrance and, and honor. Yeah. It, it's, um, it is such an important day for us to recognize the people who have done so much for our country and so many of them anonymous, so many of them behind the scenes. And unfortunately so many of them who have given their lives right. for our freedom for our freedom. I remember when we were talking with, uh, with Kenny, uh, Kenny Powers, who is a veteran who was on zoom with me years ago. Uh, when we were talking about the whole thing about kneeling during the national anthem. And remember what he said, he said, you know, that's why he did what he did. Right. So people had the choice. They wanted to kneel. That was their choice. There was freedom. Right. Pretty amazing. Yeah. It's, it's, can't wait to have the show tonight to talk all about that. We've got an incredible guest. But before that, I just wanted to acknowledge one person who was not in the service, but who did pass away on Veterans Day a year ago. And that is my dear, dear friend, Jim Quine, my brother from another mother, who was one of my co-hosts here. Um, and uh, it's still unfathomable to me, really. It's so hard to really believe that that Jim is just not here. So Mel and Mitch, if you're out there listening, we've been thinking of you all day. And we uh we really miss Jim. Incredible guy who really believed so much in the I am. When I first told him about it years and years and years ago, he immediately got it. And unleashing the power of respect is in part dedicated to Jim Klein. Because of all that he did. He was an incredible teacher, worked with kids with significant developmental challenges and just believed in them and reminded them of their value. So I miss you, Jim. Miss you a lot. So thank you for that. But we have so many people, unfortunately, who we miss 
This has been a crazy year with COVID. So many people taken, so many people are gone, and so many of our veterans um, who have succumbed either to the service there, but as we'll be talking a little bit later and how my great friend Greg Brasso and his team talk about on Veterans Voice, you know, the suicide rate in veterans, just, it's chilling. We have to do something about that. But we have with us tonight an incredible human being who we are fortunate enough to come back to talk about being a veteran himself, what it's like. Mark, could you please introduce our guest for tonight? Absolutely. Honored to introduce Patrick Troy Brandt, who was born and raised in Burlington, North Carolina. Patrick grew up acting and teching in community public school theater, only putting his artistry on pause to join the Army after graduating high school in 2004. After an honorable discharge in 2010, Patrick returned to his home and used the GI Bill to attend Guilford College in Greensboro, North Carolina. Outside of school, Patrick reconnected with old old theater friends, helping to develop the Fly-By-Night Theater Company. The FBN gang enjoyed some wonderful years creating new, innovative, and sometimes hilarious work before succumbing to the financial woes of what many local theater companies had. Patrick graduated in 2015 with a BA in theater performance and then moved to Asheville, North Carolina, where he performed professionally with Flat Rock Playhouse, North Carolina Stage, Immediate Theater Project, and Attic Salt Theater Company. But in 2018, he auditioned for and was accepted to the three-year professional conservatory at Stella Adler Studio of Acting in New York. Patrick completed his training at Stella Adler in August of 2021. He currently lives in Brooklyn with his partner, Nina, and his black cat, Bruce. Welcome back, Patrick. Welcome back, Patrick. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. Um, yeah, it's great to be here. Uh, it's a very, very uh, actor-heavy bio, because I believe that's from my website. So that would make sense. So any, <laughs> any representation listening out there, pay attention to everywhere yes. that works. Yeah, and there, there are lots. Absolutely. Fly by night theater. That sounds like an yeah. incredible thing. Tell us. I, I don't think we um, even spoke yeah. about that last time. Tell us about that. Sure. Um, great place to start. So I. Uh, so yeah. To to recap a little bit, I uh, left to go into the army right after high school. I enlisted uh, in what they call the delayed entry program at seventeen. Uh, when I was still in high school, I knew I wanted to go in. You know, at that point, and you can sign up technically as a child, you know, uh, uh, as long as you don't actively deploy to war before you're 18, you can, you know, go through basic training and all that. But anyway, um, so uh, after the army, I uh, got went back to my hometown in 2010. um, And uh, I had a bunch of friends that went to school for theater. Uh, And, you know, my plan after the army was to be a a history teacher, actually, and I figured I would keep acting as kind of a hobby, but I didn't really think I'd want to do it, you know, professionally or think I could. Um, so uh, my friends approached me about starting up a little independent theater company, and we had a great time with that, you know, uh, for a few years before 
like it like it says uh just the reality of starting a theater company is it's probably going to tank at some point but have fun while it lasts <laughs> so uh so yeah we did uh, yeah that that sounds like so much fun did you bring a lot of the energy that you had in the service i mean because we're going to be definitely focusing on the service yeah so yeah i actually um so i want to talk a little bit about uh this this event i just went to this past monday um in which uh adam driver the actor uh he, he you know he's a marine veteran and he believes very strongly in connecting veterans to the arts community um, and active service members to the arts community. Um, and he has a uh, organization called Arts in the Armed Forces that puts on events such as the one that uh, I went to with my wife this past Monday, where it was Adam Driver and a number of other um, actors, uh, uh, Stephen Boyer, um, John Totoro, uh, Lucy Taylor, uh, Jonathan Majors, a lot of, you know, uh, celebrities going up there and offering monologues and other performed pieces for a theater full of veterans. And it was a free event. And Adam Driver had a little Q&A um, afterwards. And one of the things he talked about was comparing the type of individual that comes from the military service uh, transitioning into the theater community and how... Yeah. That, that individual brings with them uh, so many aspects that, that parallel both of those worlds. Uh, you know, a, just having a work ethic and just having that drive, um, knowing that you need to show up early if you're showing up on time, you know, and if you're on time, you're late. Um, the extreme situations uh, that, that service members have to deal with, the, the very real life or death situations that service members deal with, that then translates into bringing the truth of a imagined life or death situation on stage. Um, you know, uh, working in a tight knit group of people that maybe, you know, the day before you didn't know them and they were complete strangers, but you all know you have a mission, you know, whether that mission is to, you know, uh, conduct a military operation or to put on a theater performance, you know, you have a common goal and you have a drive um, and, you bring an aspect of teamwork, you know, as a, as a veteran um, that maybe many uh, civilian uh, artists were not necessarily as exposed to. Um, and this is, this is all, again, what Adam Driver was sort of talking about that really resonated with me. And I, and I think he put it in a really, really nice, succinct way. I'm wondering whether you could just extrapolate on that a bit between yeah. theater and the service. Sure. Well, um, and I think you had, you know, sort of brought it up as kind of contrasting the two, like how does a soldier's mind go from that environment into an actor's mind? And, mm -hmm. and yeah, I was, I was kind of saying that, that there's, I think that there's a perception of what makes the ideal um, soldier's brain or soldier's mind versus what actually does. And maybe some people think that, uh, an ideal soldier is one that just follows orders strictly by the book and doesn't question them and uh, never thinks outside of that uh, parameter. But uh, uh, really what, a sold, what an ideal soldier can do is 
uh, know the mission, but improvise, you know, in order to get what the, you know, idea of the mission is when things start to go wrong. Because as anyone knows, it has been in any job anywhere, things always go wrong. You know, Murphy's Law is not just a military thing. Um, but uh, uh, so in the same vein, you know, that, that a soldier needs to be able to improvise, but still needs to have the main idea of the mission objective in mind. Uh, it's the same with the actor. You know, you have an actor on stage that has memorized lines and has a beginning of the scene, middle, and an end of the scene. But what the real actor needs to be able to do is receive everything that's happening in that moment and everything that's truthful uh, that may be, have been different than the night before or the rehearsal, you know. Um, and so an, an actor's ability to improv while still getting to the end of the scene uh, it quite directly parallels uh, what the modern soldier is asked to do, you know, not the soldier 100 years ago who needed to just, you know, take, take a piece of uh, uh, land and hold it, you know, or die trying. Yeah. So, so what is that evolution from, from that soldier that you just described to the modern soldier? How, how do you understand that happening? Well, I understand it from a very, um, you know, amateur anecdotal, I guess, perspective, uh, I would say. Um, but so I was a paratrooper, right? And one of the big, you know, one of the big uh, uh, hallmarks of, a, of an airborne unit is uh, the ability to operate when you're all scattered, uh, you know, six ways to Sunday all over a drop zone. So uh, it, what started in the paratroopers was the dissemination of information down to the lowest ranking guy. And this was in World War II, right? So okay. uh, in World War II, typically, you know, you had your lowly privates and they didn't know anything about the, the operation. The sergeant knew what was going on. The officers knew. But if they were taken out, then these privates didn't really know what to do. So uh, paratroopers started te teaching everyone down. You know, everyone was on the same page. Everyone knew what the big picture was and what the small picture was. So if, if you had three or four little privates uh, uh, that they were the only ones on the drop zone that linked up in the middle of the night, they still knew what to do and still knew how to carry on the mission. So my understanding is, is that type of mentality slowly grew and grew and grew. And, you know, um, the war that I was faced with, I was m much more of a cop, you know, than a, a soldier. You know, I was uh, boots on the ground in uniform, a representation of authority mixed among a civilian population trying to decipher uh, who were the good and the bad people? Um, which... You know, I, I don't think I don't think this listening audience knows where you were deployed. So, can we just talk about that? I was uh, I was deployed uh, to Afghanistan for a year in two thousand five, two thousand six, and uh, I did uh, two years in Iraq non consecutively. So I was. In Afghanistan for a year, back home for a year, in Iraq for a year, back home for a year, in Iraq again for another year. And that's when I was discharged. And so with, with that context, I think it, it adds to what you're saying. So you're in uniform right. in a village or a town, and your job is to do what? That's a great question. 
Um, and it's, gosh, you know, I mean, I think another big misconception is that people will lump Iraq and Afghanistan into the same conflict. And mm -hmm. in a lot of ways, it just really, really wasn't. Um, you know, but but what was similar is that as a United States soldier, you're sticking out there like a sore thumb, you know, and mm -hmm. there's no there's no real element of surprise, you know, especially in Afghanistan, unless you're, you know, going on on helicopters in the middle of the night somewhere, you know, they'll see the cloud of a truck coming for miles away and they know you're coming. <laughs> so. I mean, I thought about that a lot, you know, we're like uniformed police officers, you know, rolling up in, in a, uh, a community that's unwelcoming for one reason or another, you know, and just how, you know, there were so many times when, when we had these key leader engagements, when we'd be sitting down in, in you know, the, the huts and the compounds with the local leadership and, you know, there, there was a certain, there's a certain, I don't want to say arrogance in a disrespectful way, but there was definitely that sort of uh, air of, you know, we were playing a psychological game with them, you know, being the Americans, like we were, we were just, yeah, just tell us what you need for your village and we'll get it to you. And then you tell us where the bad guys are, right? You know, <laughs> and that, that would happen again and again. And the, the amount of times that we would just kind of take that information for face value because we didn't have any other choice. You know, and you need to have results. So if they tell you that the bad guys are over, you know, in this compound or that compound, you know, you, you get what what evidence you can and you know, but the time comes you kinda of have to act on it. Um, I hope that kind of makes sense, uh, to what what I'm talking about. As opposed to a, a uniformed enemy, you know, where there's, you know, the Germans are on that side, we're over here, you know. They're in gray uniforms. Go get them, you know. Um, yeah, it, it was a lot like I, I, I'm reminded of uh, actually a movie that I consider kind of underrated and a bit of a sleeper, uh, The Siege, uh, starring Denzel Washington, which is a fictitious account of, of, of Islamic extremist cell that takes over New York City, I believe, and kind of what happens. This was pre 9-11, so we were imagining what would happen if an extremist cell were to take over New York. And and the army is called in to deal with it in martial law. And uh, I believe Bruce Willis's character as the general of the army says, you just brought in a broadsword to do the work of a scalpel. Um, mm. And I think that says a lot of the underlying issues in Afghanistan and Iraq. Uh, mm. But... Mark, did you want to add something, or so you? Well, I, I, I was I was wondering if sometimes they had given you bad information in order to get good things for their community. I thought maybe you were going there. Is that something that happened? It absolutely, you know, and it's 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 uh, you know, and another I think important factor that that maybe a lot of people who weren't there don't realize is that in Afghanistan, particularly, you know, and Iraq, it's not just extremist, you know, versus American soldier, there is, you know, there are criminal elements there, there are just people that are there to to try and profiteer off of, you know, by, you know, playing, playing the game. 
Um, and so, you know, you roll up into a village and you have a, a corrupt police chief, you know, who, who to our American eyes, he's the police chief, right? He's the guy in charge. Like he's the uniform we go and see. All the locals know that this police chief is corrupt. They see the Americans talking with them and meeting with them. So what does that look like to them? All of a sudden we're working for him. So they stop trusting us automatically, you know, because of that. And then they, and then we see their mistrust as being shady, right? And then we're like, well, why are you all of a sudden automatically wary of the Americans? Does that mean you have something to hide from us? So, you know, it's this, it's just this, he said, she said, convoluted thing that, that I, you know, I think nine times out of 10, it just started to spin out of a control just in time for uh, a new deployment cycle to happen. Right. And for, you know, these, because that's, that's another thing that I've heard my brothers and sisters gripe over constantly is that it was so impossible for us to have any common relationship with the people on the ground because we were deployed for a year at a time. And excuse me, I had a lot of talk about before I came here. Um, <laughs> but, uh, uh, you know, and then in a year we're out and total strangers come in. I mean, they're Americans, but they don't know the, you know, I mean, every American what, is different, just like everyone else is different. What, what, what was, I mean, again, you might not be able to, to answer, but what was the thinking behind that? A year in, then a year back home? Um, I think that it was the powers that be in charge thinking we need to make this look good and we need to make it look like we're not keeping our soldiers away from their families for years mm -hmm. on end, et cetera. Um, mm. I, I mean, I just think that that would be such a crazy concept to people who are not actually over there. But I think if you really were to talk to a lot of veterans like myself that had a lot of time, you know, outside the wire, as we would call it, outside of the base, you know, engaged in the locals, I think that a lot of people would say that we needed to have that those relationships to really understand, uh, I mean, to understand what these people were going through for another thing, because this, this war, this conflict does deserve that humanity, you know, I mean, because it's not just uniformed enemy. It, uh, yeah, we were police without knowing our community. Yeah. You know, one of the things I wanted to come back to, if, if we could, was something I noticed you say early on that that you basically enlisted when you were 17 and you said signing up as a child 17 so yeah it's it is an interesting fact but it is absolutely i mean technically true that america is one of the nations in the world that does accept child soldiers technically wow. it's it's just you know um, and again, like what I was saying before, you know, I, you can enlist at 17 with, uh, guardians signature and, you know, for example, you can go do basic training and then come back and finish high school, you know, after that summer, and then you graduate and you're in the army, you know, and that sort of thing. Um, and I did, much to my parents' chagrin. I think, as I mentioned this the episode before, they were, at the same time, extremely supportive of me and proud of me wanting to pursue my dreams. The other time, very, very much not excited about the prospect of me uh, 
going into the airborne infantry in 2004. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, that, and you bringing that up, you know, I have to say uh, I, I, the Kyle Rittenhouse trial has been on my mind, you know, quite a bit. And I, I reflect on my journey, you know, myself at 35 now and where I was at 17, you know, wanting nothing more than to join the military and fight for what I thought was right. And, you know, it's not, I mean, I had the support of a nation behind me at that time, you know, and as a 17 year old in 2004, there was just so little, there's so little room for questioning the war. And at that, at that time, you know, I think we can all remember that. And, mm -hmm. and there was so so many external factors of mine propelling me you know to this this great adventure and yeah i mean i don't i'm not i'm very i'm trying to get very trying to stay very apolitical with this but you know the fact that 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 kyle was the child when the events occurred you know technically a child who was supported by people who equipped him with the firearm, who drove him to the location, you know, as opposed to this was not a lone wolf incident. This was not a, you know, a vigilante patriot, whatever, you know, you uh, morally you put on it. This was someone who was fervently supported by their community to be put in the situation they were put. And you could probably, maybe you could say the same thing for the uh the the victims of that night too but um i haven't watched much of the trial i just don't you know I, I just know that i don't know who i would be if i was 17 years old right now and had and had the mind you know that i had in 2004 so whatever that's worth i think it's deserving of of empathy and pity <laughs> for people that that are maybe forced into situations uh, thinking that they are absolutely doing the righteous, good, good thing. I don't know. No, but this is, this is a, a powerful moment uh, in the United States. Cause I think that there are, are many parallels to that about people believing in something that they believe in and that they need to do the right thing for it. And, yeah. you know, that's part of the I am is saying, okay, so that's your I am. That's the best you can do. But let's try to understand it based on the influence of the four domains. Doesn't mean it's a free ride. You're held responsible. Right. But understanding it is different than judging it. And so there you are, a 17 year old, impressionable. Yeah. The United States is, you know, I think more or less on the same page, the majority of people perhaps on the same page, unlike now where we have real political divides, which, you know, have their own merits and there's, there's history behind it. But there you are now, these years later, it sounds like you're reflecting back and wondering what? 
Yeah. Um, I do try. Yeah. I, I guess mine is a pretty extreme, unique example to, you know, 180 that I've done, you know, um, but I mean, but what, what, what is that 180 Patrick is, uh, well, okay. Yeah. The 180 from, from being, uh, uh, a, a, a gung ho, um, you know, rough and tough soldier who wants to go into the army and then get out and be a cop, you know, and work for the DEA, um, to a, uh, you know, now, <laughs> uh, social anarchist, uh, who, uh, is also an abolitionist and believes, um, that, that, um, the entire, uh, justice system needs to be completely restructured and, uh, re-looked at, you know, um, but I mean, who, who among us didn't have some crazy shit that they did, excuse me, <laughs> crazy stuff that they did uh <laughs> um when they were 17 18 19 um that we now look back right. on right and, and certainly uh, you know it's, i hope you're, you're not judging yourself but yeah. recognizing you know what what is a 17 year old brand i mean we talk about this in drug story theater you know the mm-hmm. the impulsive limbic brain that is in charge as opposed to the more rational prefrontal cortex brain that is now thinking things through what, what will happen next if I do this now? And, and also in the last show, you, you talked about, yes, we need to change, but it doesn't mean that we can do it without being held accountable for what we have right. done. Right. I thought that was a very, very important point that you made in the last show as well. well yeah. I appreciate Thank you for, bringing that up and that's sort of, I mean, I, I struggle with that. How, you know, how do I reflect my identity as a veteran? Um, and, and I do, I believe as far as accountability goes, I believe in taking ownership, you know, of, of positions I was in decisions that I made, et cetera. But, but I believe approaching that from a source of empathy and, and, you know, with me and, and everyone else, um, on both sides of the table, um, my enemies as well, you know. Yeah. Well, you know, even even if we have enemies, I still believe that all human beings want the same thing, which is just to feel valued by somebody else. And this, of course, is, you know, is at a, an individual level and at a national level, and that's part of the struggle that we have. How do we... How do we remind someone else of their value, um, even if we don't agree with their position? You know, why? Well, right? Or, I mean, that kind of had me thinking back on the the subject of uh, a veteran suicide mm. and people not feeling their value. Maybe, um, you know, I and this is a pretty common thing you'll hear of other veterans uh, in my. You know, my team, my company, we, we've lost more to suicide than we have to those killed in action. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I was thinking about that because we kind of talked about this last night in prep for this show. And, you know, this, this, this feeling that you get on deployment, right, that 
all you're doing is just sitting over there and just thinking about the life that you'll have once you get out. I mean, it's almost like prison in that way, and your your mind runs wild, and you know the 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 person you've been talking to back home, you're gonna you know move in with them, and you know everyone's gonna be like, oh, it's them, the the veteran. Yeah, we you know we love you and we'll support you forever. Um, and then and then I think with a lot of guys, something that's not talked about is the reality of the mundane life that happens after the most exciting period in your life. You know, you go and fight this war and you experience objectively awesome and remarkable things. And I don't mean as in like cool, but like truly awe-inspiring. You can't fathom what you've witnessed. And I don't think combat becomes addictive, but I think surviving combat becomes addictive. Yeah. And I think, I think that you see a real difference in, in, in people that have just been mentally torn up over the horrors of war. And just as toxic, you have people that have become war junkies. Um, hmm. And I would say that, that the guys that I know that, that took their life after the service fit more into this war junkie category. Uh, I don't know that we know how to even process that as a society. How do we deal with that? Um, you know, it's interesting. I, I don't know whether I've heard the war junkie part as much as people thinking post-traumatic stress, survivor's guilt, um, you know, the yeah. overwhelming anxiety of, of, of always being, you know, on edge and, and anything can happen. And, and we got pretty deep there off the air, and I think we're going to keep going with it. Yeah. We were talking about the suicides in our veterans, 30,000, and unfortunately counting. And Patrick, I'm just wondering what your thoughts are, where you want to go with this. Um, you know, I, I think, I, again, I guess, well, I think... <laughs> And I'm not I'm not an expert. I haven't looked up numbers on this, but I, you know, maybe it's worth mentioning that I feel like suicides might be up uh, across quite a few um, members of the you know categories of, of of people nowadays. But yeah, obviously, I mean, with 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 service members and with veterans. Um, I mean, like, I think back to what we were just talking about before, that, that maybe there's a disconnect in, there's still a disconnect in actually listening to what's bothering veterans and what's bothering mm. people. And maybe, maybe there's still an apprehension uh, for veterans to fully talk about all of their experiences. Because I think that a lot of people don't understand that it's not it's not what you think that makes you, you know, unhealthy. It's, it's what you do with those thoughts, right? Yes, and, absolutely. There's nothing wrong with the feeling. It's what you do with it. That's important. And I, and I think that, it, I think that there's, at least I know again, in the, in the infantry community in the, in the, uh, there's, there's a serious apprehension to kind of talk freely about some of the more, positive associations people have with their wartime experiences. Hmm. 
And I'm not saying that's necessarily healthy to have a positive attachment to a particularly gruesome firefight, but that's definitely something that needs to be talked about openly. Um, yeah, yeah I, and again, you're right. I mean, through COVID, all categories have increased in terms of depression, anxiety, and in, and in completed suicides. Um, but I, I think, you know, there's the mythology that soldiers are tough and they're meant to be able to withstand all this stuff. And if you as a soldier can't do that, then there's something wrong with you. Um, or, uh, you know, the, the idea that, that we're on such high alert all the time when you're in combat or, or facing that, I mean, and then you come back home and you can't turn that part of your brain off. Yeah. And it's overwhelming the anxiety and, and that that fear, and yet you're not meant to be afraid. You're a soldier, so yeah. th there may be all of that. And and I, I want to just segue it back, if if it's okay, back into the theater, mm -hmm. because you were in a show during COVID um, called All My Sons, and it's. I know we were talking about that off air as well, but can you just like talk a little bit about that show, what it is sure. and you as a veteran uh, being in it? Yeah. So um, for those who don't know, All My Sons is a classic Arthur Miller play that takes place in the late 1940s and it centers around a Midwestern family um, that has two adult sons that went off to fight in World War II, and one of them didn't come home. Um, and spoiler alerts all over the place in here, but it was written in 1948, so probably should have checked it out by now. But no. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, as it turns out, the uh, the father was in charge of a factory that, that, that manufactured airplane engines, and there was a crack in... in there's a fault in the manufacturing process and we are led to believe that the father let that let these engine heads go through the factory to make the quota and this engine ended up being in you know the airplane of a, of a plane that, that killed a bunch of american pilots and the son is so overwrought with grief that he ends up committing suicide by diving his plane into the ocean essentially um so i played the surviving son, Chris, who was a World War II veteran, and Chris was dealing with, um, amongst other things, a significant amount of unchecked survivor's guilt. And, uh, um, and uh, you know, that's definitely something that I've struggled with, uh, with, with a, there was a particular uh, mission that, um, without going into the details, essentially the truck that I was, that I was crewing the gun, there, you know, gun truck, a Humvee with a machine gun on it was switched out for another team's truck last minute for some freak incident. And that team's truck ended up hitting an incendiary, uh, IED, um, in which the, uh, uh occupants inside burned, um, 
And uh, so, you know, it's taken a lot to talk about that freely, you know. But uh, I appreciate you being able to do that. So you were going to be that truck. Yeah, I mean, yeah, we were, you know, I was a scout truck for convoy operations, which means that this was in Iraq. Um, And so the scout truck drives three to five kilometers above in front of the convoy to, you know, scout for things. Um, And uh, just at the last minute, one of our trucks engines was having trouble. So the convoy behind us was sent out the gate first. And uh, that's what we understand happened. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, um, navigating a character that's so, you know, close to yourself, especially when it comes to the trauma that they have endured and that they're going through, is uh, a slugfest. It was really, and it was compounded by the fact that we were, you know, my class was going through this, you know, in 2020. So we were supposed to be doing this live in theater, you know, with other breathing, living people around us, but we were allocated to the world of Zoom. So each actor was in their own apartment. I mean, I was in, I'm in the, in the apartment I'm in now, um, trying to be in a realism scene with other Zoom faces. Um, and the, the, the most, the, the, weirdest thing was at the end of the night when you switched off from rehearsal or from a show i was just here alone you know and uh uh and yeah i had a, i had a couple of pretty significant breakdowns uh over that um but i will also say that um because of the support that i've had i've kind of been able to work through that and it's kind of it's it's been an intense sort of therapy for me. Um, it's it's been said that dr- that acting shouldn't be your therapy, but it can be therapeutic. You know, you shouldn't become an actor because you want to solve your problems. But sometimes, mm-hmm. sometimes it works out. Um, but yeah, it's you know, I mean, I think about maybe a, someone who is very close to the AIDS crisis that has you know that has to perform in Angels in America, which is a play that centers around exactly around that and so it's you know my story's not not unique but it is it is a facet of uh of the actor life i guess so that that's a small change with a big effect the fact that you were there the show is over and you're alone as opposed to being in backstage with the whole crew of people right you know, the I am small changes can have big effects. What small change can you recommend to people who may be going through similar things right now, Patrick? Yeah, I, uh, I guess this time I would offer that having a creative outlet can really offer you uh, something. Um, just don't keep it bottled up and, you know, uh, if there's no one to talk to immediately, find a way to express it a different way and that you can share with other people at a, at a later date, maybe. Um, mm-hmm. But I think creativity and I think have, give yourself, give yourself a creative outlet, you know? And, and the second truth of the I am, you control no one, you influence everyone. 
you get to choose the kind of influence you want to be. Patrick, you've been a pretty powerful influence tonight, but what kind of influence do you want to be? Type of influence that supports the future generations. You know, your sharing your experiences is so powerful. And I, I hope people can hear this, that it's okay to do this. It's okay to be who you are and not have to worry that you're broken or that you're less than, but that you're responding to the four domains, um, your home domain, the social domain, biological domain in the IC. How do I see myself? How do I think other people see me? And Patrick, you're telling us that the way you saw yourself when you were 17 is different than now. And this just makes sense, folks. We will look at ourselves differently. But never underestimate yourselves. You have enormous, enormous value. Enormous value. Patrick, thank you so much for being here tonight. Folks, Thank you, veterans. Thank you, all of you, and the Dr. Joe Show.